Please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Psalm 133.1, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It's my deepest prayer for this church that we would reflect that verse. Not conformity necessarily, but unity under the mind of Christ. As I mentioned to you, you would benefit. We'll, we'll be reading various chunks of, of 1 Corinthians as we go through. You would probably benefit from having your outline out if you still have that outline from a few weeks ago when you received the monthly handout. Paul's travels to Corinth were during what we often call his second missionary journey. He began from Antioch on this journey. He traveled into Galatia. When he went to Galatia, he did so to visit those churches which he had um, begun through seeing people saved during his first journey. He visited Derby, Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. After which the scriptures tell us he desired to go into Asia. Asia at this time is not Asia as we think of it today. This would have been the area um, that we would call, well it would have been kind of the southwestern area of Turkey today. According to Acts 16.6 however, the Holy Spirit forbade Paul to go to Asia. Wouldn't let him go. We know nothing more of this restraint. We don't know why it is or exactly what this restraint was. But having been told that they could not go to Asia by the Holy Spirit, says that they went to Troas, which is on the northern tip above Asia. Acts 16.9 tells us that Paul had a vision while he was in Troas of a man in Macedonia. Macedonia is that area just above Greece today. And this man in this vision beseeched him to come and help them. It's often called today the Macedonian call, if you're familiar with the phrase. Immediately, Paul and his companions departed to Macedonia, knowing that they had been called there by God to share the gospel. Their first major stop when they got to Macedonia was a place called Philippi. Then they went to Thessalonica, then to Berea. In Thessalonica, the Jews were very hostile to the gospel. They listened to it for a little while, but they became extremely hostile to the gospel. And even after Paul and Silas had left Thessalonica, the Jews of Thessalonica actually pursued them to the city of Berea to stir up trouble there. Now, you might be familiar with the city of Berea. We don't know much about the Bereans, except that they searched the scriptures daily. They took what Paul said and they went back to the scriptures and they searched them diligently to compare what Paul said with the scriptures. And we often speak of the desire that we would have to be like the Bereans who are listening to the word of God preached, but they're not taking it just at the word of the man preaching. They are looking at the scriptures, comparing scripture with scripture and understanding what God is saying. And it's important that we be like the Bereans. Well, the... Jews went from Thessalonica and stirred up trouble in Berea, so much so that Paul was immediately sent away. It was really Paul that they were focusing on. He was the spokesman, as it were, of the group. 
Silas and Timothy stayed in Berea, planning to join him soon. Paul went down to Athens in the region of Achaia. In Athens, Paul was extremely grieved when he saw the, the amount of idolatry there. So he confronted the people. He didn't wait for Silas and Timothy to get there. He immediately confronted the people about their superstition and about their idolatry. Perhaps you're familiar with the great sermon on Mars Hill, as we might call it today, where Paul uh, rebuked the Athenians for, for worshiping all of these gods. And they even had an altar to an unknown god. If there are any out there that we don't even know of, we'll, we'll worship him too. We don't know who he is, but we're, gonna, we're just going to run the gamut. But any god we can find and we'll worship them all and hopefully we'll appease them all. And he confronted them about their superstition, about their idolatry. A confrontation which earned many more enemies than friends in the city of Athens. However, the scriptures tell us some did believe. And Paul soon departed from Athens and ended up in the city of Corinth. Silas and Timotheus, when they finally caught up with Paul, caught up with him in Corinth. In Corinth, as we read this morning in our scripture reading, Paul stayed with a married couple. Their names were Aquila and Priscilla. They shared his vocation, which was tent making. Oftentimes, when Paul went to a city, he would support himself with his vocation. He would not necessarily support himself through the church, or particularly if there wasn't a church yet, and he needed to uh, find believers to raise up a church, uh, there would be no support for him. So he had a vocation, and he would work that vocation. His vocation was tent making. According to Acts 18, verses 1 and 2, which we read this morning, they had just, Aquila and Priscilla had just recently moved to Corinth from Rome. And they had done so because the emperor, who at the time we know was Emperor Claudius, had commanded all Jews to depart from Rome. He called them troublemakers. He was sick of the trouble they were causing. So all of the Jews were required to leave the capital of Rome, which was Rome. Paul continued in Corinth for one year and six months, according to the scriptures. The city of Corinth was well known to be a city filled with vulgar materialism, great wealth, and tremendous immorality. As a matter of fact, in the days of the Greek Empire, some 150, 200 years prior to the time when Paul got there, anyone in the land, anyone in the Greek Empire, any woman who was a prostitute would be called a Corinthian girl. Corinth was a place so well known for its immorality that it bore the name in every region for its prostitution and for its immorality. A place of tremendous immorality. Corinth was the hub of a temple. A temple dedicated to the Greek goddess Aphrodite. It was rumored that in that temple there were 1,000 temple prostitutes. Corinth was a place where it was, it was basically called the graveyard of morality. You could not go into the city without such deep and tremendous temptation toward sexual sins that it was, it was just it was a graveyard of morality. Now, the Corinth of Paul's day was a different Corinth necessarily than the Corinth of, of the Greek Empire. See, Corinth had been destroyed in year 146 B.C. They sought to revolt against the Roman authority soon after Rome had taken control of the Greek Empire and they revolted. And they were destroyed. For 100 years, the city lay in ruins. 
And it was not until 46 BC that Julius Caesar chose to refound the city of Corinth as a Roman colony. So for 100 years, the city lay in rubble. Then Julius Caesar decides he wants to make it a Roman colony. And he does so in 46 BC. In 27 BC, the city had grown to such great stature that it was made the government seat for, a for, for the region of Achaia. Kind of like how Buffalo is the, the county seat. We've got numerous other cities and towns in, the, in Wright County, but if you want to get things done in a government capacity, you come to Buffalo to get it done. In much the same way, Corinth was the government seat for the region of Achaia in Rome. That was the place where you would go if you wanted to seek government representation for your region. It became a very powerful city in that regard. And this was still the case when Paul visited. Now, Paul would visit 78 years after it was made the government seat in 51 AD. So we're talking about a, a span of about 200 to 250 years since the city had been destroyed, since all of the, the Greek Empire's glory and, and those elements. However... As we step back into Corinth in the Roman Empire, what we see is that much of that vestige of Greek life, the philosophy, the, the pursuit of knowledge for the sake of knowledge, and even the immorality and the idolatry and the superstition, they were still there. They had still found their way into this culture. And we need to know that as Paul is writing to the church. This letter that Paul writes to the Corinthians here in 1 Corinthians, the, the title in my Bible is The First Epistle of Paul the Apostle to the Corinthians. However, it was actually not the first epistle that he, he wrote to them. We know from 1 Corinthians 5.9, as Paul speaks of the fact that he had written to them in a previous letter, that this was actually at least the second letter written to the Corinthian church. However, the first one was not preserved. It, is not, it was not inspired scripture. 1 Corinthians is recognized by God's people as being the preserved word of God and inspired by God through the Holy Spirit. So this letter of 1 Corinthians was most likely written about two years after Paul left the city of Corinth, around 53 to 54 AD. So if you think he's, he had been in Corinth for a year and a half, he had been an integral part of the church, teaching and discipling, he leaves Corinth. He writes them one letter, as we see from 1 Corinthians 5.9. It seems as though they misunderstood that letter. He writes to them again, the letter that we now call 1 Corinthians. And it's some two years after he's left them. The first epistle of Corinthians is an epistle of heavy correction. It reminds us that the church is filled with sinners. And that none of us has all the answers. You know, but as I say this, I don't say it as an excuse. Nor does Paul give it to them as an excuse. The reminders of our frailty and failings, the reminders of our sin, should not provide for us an excuse to continue in them. But rather, these reminders should humble us into self-reflection and motivate us unto determined obedience and submission to the Word of God. And that's what Paul is teaching in 1 Corinthians. We're going to see a church that has a whole lot of problems in it. Paul is not excusing these problems, but it does remind us that there are problems in the church. We don't come to a group of perfect people and live our perfect little lives and leave perfect 
and look at the rest of the world and say, oh, how imperfect all the rest of the world is. And oh, how perfect we are. And oh, how we've got all of our ducks in a row. And oh, they're, they're, they're so confused and we've got it all straight. 1 Corinthians is going to show us that that's not the church. But that is not an excuse to live in sin. The fact that we are sinners is not an excuse to live in sin. And Paul's going to make that very clear. As I've mentioned, if you have the outline that I gave you a couple of weeks ago, you'll see that I break the epistle of Corinthians into five main sections. And if you have the outline for the sermon this morning, you'll notice that there are five points. My sermon is going to reflect the outline to a great degree. Each broad section will become one point in my sermon through which I hope to give you a broad perspective. Now you say, there are more than five Roman numerals on the outline, Pastor. Yeah, but there's an introduction and a conclusion. And so, um, take that for what it is. Main points. I said there's five main points. And I hope to give you a broad perspective this morning of what Paul was saying to this church at Corinth and how we can apply these lessons in a broad perspective and keep these lessons in our minds in a broad perspective so that as we're digging into the nitty-gritty of the book, as I try to say, as we're in the trenches, we don't forget the, the whole battlefield. As we're in the forest, we don't forget the forest for the trees. So we'll get a broad perspective this morning, and we'll do so, as we do so, we'll learn five commands. Five commands reflected in the words of Paul the Apostle, as inspired by the Holy Spirit, to the church at Corinth. And the first command that we see in chapters 1 through 4 is to be unified. Be unified. The big problem of the church that Paul presents at the beginning of this epistle was carnality. By this, Paul is describing those that are living lives driven by their flesh instead of driven by their spirit. We talked just briefly in Sunday school this morning about the reality that our flesh will always be sinful. Our spirit will be renewed. Our spirit is born again, but our, this body has, is, is the old man. It, it will be sinful. I will always, until the day that I die or Jesus Christ comes, struggle with sin with temptation because I'm in this body and this body is, has a sin nature. And so as Paul rebukes this church, he says, you're being carnal. You're being fleshly. Your life is characterized by your flesh, by the old man, by the dead man, instead of being characterized by the spirit, by the new man, by the man who has been, been born again in Christ. The entire book will feature... Correction concerning numerous elements of carnality that had found their way into the Corinthian church. And Paul's first focus is really the sin by which Paul knew how, much, how carnal the church really was. It was the symptom by which he recognized exactly how bad the situation was in Corinth and this was the sin of disunity. You say, oh, pastor, the sin of disunity... I would expect with your great lead up to how terrible the sin was, it would have been something else, something worse. Well, we'll see some of the elements that, some of the other symptoms that are pretty bad. But you know, we have a tendency to rank sins, don't we? And those sins that perhaps are, are sins that we struggle with, or those sins that uh, we can sweep under the rug, or those sins that other people don't see, those sins that maybe aren't quite as public, we tend to minimize them. 
and we maximize those sins that we consider to be grievous sins, terrible sins. I was talking to a lady about this at the, at the Arts and Crafts Fair yesterday as we were out and about and was, was talking to her about the, this, this reality that we have this tendency to rank sins. But you know, as Paul begins this epistle, he says there is carnality in the church and it is evidenced through disunity. Look with me in verses 10 through 13 of, of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For, I, for it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. Now this I say, that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you or were ye baptized in the name of Paul? See, the Corinthian church had divided themselves into factions. And each of these factions were claiming loyalty to different doctrines and ascribing those different doctrines to different men. So some said, you know what, I'm just following the teachings of Apollos here. This is what Apollos said. And another said, well, I'm following the teachings of Paul. Well, I'm following the teachings of Cephas. Cephas being the Hebrew name for Peter. I'm following the teachings of Peter. And another said, well, I'm following the teachings of Christ. So there you go. And there was so much division among them. And, and do you notice? It's false division. It's false division. Lines were being divided in this church among false standards of spiritual authority by which men were seeking to justify their actions and claim some level of personal authority and assert their superiority over others in the church by dividing themselves into false factions. Were Paul and Apollos and Cephas and Christ saying different things? No. They were teaching the same doctrine, but these men had divided themselves into levels of superiority and levels of authority and sought to establish their superiority and their authority by ascribing these teachings to certain men. Does that sound familiar to you at all? Where do you hear about people justifying their actions through false authorities? Subscribing to authorities to justify their superiority. Seeking to claim these levels of personal authority. Does it sound like politics? Does it sound like the business world? Does it sound like the Christian world? See, what Paul was emphasizing is that as they did this, as they broke into factions, as they cut themselves along certain lines of ideologies, philosophies, thoughts, concepts, doctrines. They were doing the exact same thing all the rest of the world does. They were doing the exact same thing all the rest of the world does. They were dividing themselves along all sorts of lines and claiming superiority one over another. Happens all the time in politics, does it not? The bumper stickers, the concepts, the Facebook posts, the news stations, you got your conservative and your liberal news stations and they're fighting each other 
Are they not? They're fighting each other. They're going back and forth. They're playing the game. But don't we do it in the church as well? Buffalo has 14 denominations. 15,000 people and 14 denominations. Now, I'm not saying that all of those disagreements and divisions and separations are petty. They're, they're not. There are, there are legitimate lines of separation that need to be drawn. That's not what we're talking about. But is the church doing any better when we are claiming our earthly authorities, dividing them along carnal lines? See, that's what Paul was saying. The believers in Corinth, and they were believers, make no mistake, these were born-again Christians. Holy Spirit indwelled Christians. We'll see it all throughout the book. These believers had defaulted back to the manner of living in which they used world, all the worldly wisdom at their disposal to gain the upper hand. All of the manipulation. All of whoever, whatever name they could invoke to prove their superiority. Power. Influence. Authority. It was all up for grabs and everyone wanted it. All the while, everything that made them distinct as believers, everything that, would, that should have distinguished them from the unbelieving world had fallen under the weight of this carnal disunity. They were nothing more than men and women who were saved from the consequences of hell. They lost all their testimony. They lost all their distinction. They were carnal to the core. And so Paul called them back to a unity of mind. A mind focused again on those elements that characterize the mind of Christ. The foundational teachings of Jesus Christ with which they could build upon. And so Paul warns them as we jump ahead to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 to build up properly upon a foundation. And it's not a foundation of division along your little lines, but a foundation of the truth of Jesus Christ. Look at me in 1 Corinthians 3, beginning in verse 11. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy, for the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you seemeth to be wise in this world, let him become a fool that he may be wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, He taketh the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knoweth the thoughts of the wise, that they are vain. Therefore, let no man glory in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul, or Apollos, or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or things present, or things to come. All are yours, and ye are Christ, and Christ is God's. He says, quit this squabbling. Quit dividing yourself into these factions. Understand the truth of God's Word. Get the mind of Christ. And all of this stuff will dissipate. Follow the truth of God's word. And if you're devoted to the truth of God's word, there will be unity. And where there is unity, there is peace. The scriptures tell us. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is, Psalm 133.1. 1. 
for brethren to dwell together in unity. Now, for all the petty divisions that we find in Christianity, I can tell you the reason why there are 14 denominations in Buffalo is because though some of these denominations might even seek unity, and we should be one of them, unity comes with the mind of Christ. And not every church in this area is seeking the mind of Christ. See, because the mind of Christ is clearly defined in the Word of God. It's not open to reinterpretation. Sometimes there may be misinterpretation. But it's not open to be defined. It is defined for us. But see, there are many people, many churches, and ours could become one of them, so don't think I'm just pointing the fingers. There are many churches who have given up the mind of Christ to follow their own pursuits. Maybe that's their own pet doctrine. Maybe that's social programs. Maybe that is some manner of argument that they've had that they just can't get over. Maybe it's some thread of teaching that one man has taught and they just won't give up him. Some prophet that they ascribe themselves to. Whatever it be, where the mind of Christ is, there will be unity in the church. And Paul says... Take the mind of Christ and make that the foundation. The truth of God's Word is the foundation. And then build on it. Build on it the realities of the Christian life. Be unified, Paul says. Second point, major point in in chapters 5 through 7, be physically pure. Be physically pure. One of the things that had gone uncorrected while the people were busy fighting over their divisive loyalties in the church was that there was fornication among the believers in this church. A man in the church was in a physical relationship with his father's wife, with his stepmother. And rather than mourn, rather than correct the issue, the people had responded in arrogance. Possibly a part of this had to do with their division and maybe there were some in the church that did desire to mourn but they were frozen by the division of the church. See, have you ever noticed how difficult it is to correct division when there's division? It really must be a work of God. Because you're never going to agree on the correct method of unification if you're divided among carnal lines. And so here there were things that needed to be correcting and Paul says that they were arrogant, they were puffed up And they didn't correct this man. Perhaps some justified his actions because of the circumstances. Perhaps some didn't really know what the deal was and they wanted to give him the benefit of the doubt. Perhaps some wanted to disassociate with him to correct him as according to the scriptures. But they were frozen by the disunity in the church. Nothing could get done because everyone was thinking and pursuing what they wanted. What they thought was best instead of seeking what God wanted, what God thought was best. And why? Because they were carnal. Because they were thinking with all of the human reasoning they had at their disposal, and they left the Word of God out of it. They left God's wisdom behind and pursued man's wisdom. And it can't work in the church. It can't work in the church. Paul rebukes the church. And he calls for the church to discipline this man. To do it among themselves. To put him out from their fellowship. 
And he had to state that they needed to do it among themselves because it seemed there were many in the church who were going to the Roman legal system to solve their problems. They were disputing one another as believers among the Roman legal system. Look with me in chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. Paul says, Dare any of you having a matter against another go to law before the unjust and not before the saints? Do ye not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Know ye not that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If ye then have judgments of things pertaining to this life, set them to judge who are least esteemed in the church. I speak to your shame. It is, is it so that there is not a wise man among you? No, not one that shall be able to judge between his brethren. They were bringing matters that should have been solved among the body of Christ to unsaved judges to pass down sentence. And again, it reveals their carnality. Can, can you see the, the degree to which these people were reliant upon the flesh, the physical, the wisdom of this world? They would go, and, and, and you can see a play, in terms, uh, a play on words here in chapter 6, verse 1. He says, you're going before the unjust to find justice. You are going before men who are not justified under God to seek justice when you should be going to those who are your brethren, who have a wisdom not founded in this world but rooted in God and His Word. He says, I speak this to your shame. You're carnal. You're living rooted in this life. You, you, you claim the name of Christ. You have accepted Christ as your Savior. You are teaching various aspects of the Word of God, but you're your, your heart, your operation, your worldview, the way you operate, your conversation is still rooted in this physical world. He says, I speak it to your shame. Rather, Paul exhorts the church to remember God's gracious love toward them and to flee fornication. And that's what he speaks as he gets into chapter 7. Paul teaches in chapter 7 upon some of the dynamics of marriage. Paul states that the best way to avoid fornication for those that are tempted in this area is to get married so that they may have the physical relationship in a God-sanctioned setting. But marriage comes with great responsibilities. In verse 9, he says it's much better, chapter 7, verse 9, to marry than to live in sin. But once a couple is married, verse 10 states that they're not to be separated. And then in verse 11, he says, if they do need to separate because there are circumstances in this life when we're dealing with people with sin natures where separation happens. If they do separate, verse 11 states that they are to remain unmarried. The overarching lessons here go well beyond marriage, however. The point Paul is making is that time is short. And this is the point that he's driving toward. He says, you're going to law one with another. You've got all of this division among you. You have all of these issues. You're, you're, you're saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. And then this man, he, he is committing fornication in your midst and you're not correcting him. You have this tremendous arrogance. You're puffed up with this pride that makes you think that you can get away with this. Know ye not that a little leaven leaven at the whole lump. He's telling him all these things and he's driving toward a point and the point he's making is this, that time is short. There is work to be done and we as believers, according to the grace of God that is given to each one of us, should not seek to be bound to anything earthly or material. 
We should loose ourselves from as many earthly and material things as God, according to the grace that He has given to us, has allowed. Now, for many of us, as with many in the church of Corinth, they needed the marriage relationship. They needed that. Uh, they needed the freedoms found in the marriage relationship. They needed the help meet that comes with the marriage relationship. They needed that. Paul says that's okay. That's not a sin. But he would go on to say in chapter 7, you know, it would be better if you could be as I and not need that so that you could devote yourself even more to Christ. And why it's so important. See, the degree to which we are not bound to anything material, to wives, to families, to jobs, to traditions, to positions, to whatever degree we are not bound to these things, we are better able to spend our time and effort serving God, serving Christ, serving eternal purposes. But it is interesting to note that as Paul teaches in the book about carnality, which is the opposite of spirituality, he begins with the teaching of this concept of physical purity. See, I would have thought if I were writing the book, I would have gone from carnality to spiritual purity, then to physical purity, knowing that a physical purity is an outworking of the spiritual. But here, he starts with the outward purity, revealing the sins that are manifest in their bodies in order that he may then pinpoint the problems in their spiritual lives that undergird what's happening in their physical lives. And of course, I know we're breezing through this. We'll dig in over the next several months. Something to look forward to. So he tells them to be unified. He tells them to be physically pure. And then in chapters 8 through 10... He exhorts them to be spiritually pure. He says, be spiritually pure. The bulk of chapters 8 through 10 focus upon the dangers of spiritual fornication. But the manner in which Paul approaches the issue is, again, perhaps a little bit different than what we might expect. He gives warnings in chapter 10 uh, regarding various aspects of spiritual fornication. In verse 6 of chapter 10, he says, don't lust. In verse 7, he says, don't be idolatrous. In verse 8, he says, don't commit fornication. In verse 9, he says, don't tempt Christ. In verse 10, he says, don't murmur against God. But this is at the end of his teaching on spiritual fornication. These warnings also only take up a very small portion, a fraction of what Paul discusses on the issue. The bulk of the issue in chapters 8 through 10, the bulk of what Paul is teaching on in these chapters, is speaking directly concerning the responsibility that believers have to withhold or to limit their physical liberties that they might be given in Christ for two reasons. That they would limit their liberty, number one, in order to be able to serve God more effectively, and number two, so as not to offend or cause a brother in Christ to stumble. And so Paul calls upon them to limit the liberties that they have in Christ. Paul is teaching in chapter 7, and he says, you have the liberty to take a wife. You have the liberty to take jobs and to pursue your interests and to pursue all of those physical things in this life. As we might say today, you have the liberty to pursue the amusements. You have the liberty to pursue the positions and the jobs and the volunteer work and the vacations and all of those things. God, had, through Christ, has given you the liberty to pursue those things. But what Paul is teaching in chapters 8 through 10 is to whatever degree you're willing and able to withhold from yourself some of these liberties, 
you will better be able to serve eternity. You will better be able to serve Christ. And by the way, he also says, you ought to limit your liberties to whatever degree you might cause a a brother to stumble. Look with me at chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. Paul says, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize? So run that ye may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate, controlled in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. He says, I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air, but I keep under my body, and I bring it into subjection, lest by any means, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. He says, look, I am in a race. I don't know if you've ever known somebody that's seriously training for a marathon or seriously training for some physical um, competition. They give up the donuts. They give up the caffeine. You invite them out to fast food and they say, I'll go sit with you while you eat those fries and while you have that milkshake. But they're not about to partake. They are, they are regulating their calories. They're regulating where those calories go. They're regulating their time. They're, they're running a certain amount every day. They are entirely disciplined. They have set aside, they have, they have withheld from themselves the liberties of this life in order to pursue something else. Paul says the same thing about the Christian life. To whatever degree we limit ourselves in the pursuit of the things of this life, in order that we might better be able to pursue the things of the next life, we are running the race better. You have the liberty in Christ to pursue those things. But if you limit those things, you're running the race better. You're running the race better. Look with me in Romans, uh, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 10, 23. Chapter 10, verse 23. Paul says, All things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but all things edify not. There are things that are lawful. But you know what? They're not doing anyone any good. I enjoy them maybe. They help me relax. Whatever the case may be. They're lawful. But they're not helping. He says we need to be temperate. We need to control the amount of time we put into our liberty. Because to whatever degree we withhold ourselves from these liberties, we run the race better. Christian liberty is a major topic in Christian circles today. Christian liberty is one of the reasons why our church looks a little different from the churches around us. Christian liberty is one of the reasons why many professing believers look indistinguishable from the world around them. But as Paul speaks of Christian liberty in this passage, he does not reference liberty as a license to be like the world, but only rather as a means by which we have the flexibility to show others the expectation of God's Word and to live this life. As Paul references liberty in these chapters, his focus will be upon willing limitations of our liberty for the sake of the gospel, not the free use of our liberty for the sake of convenience or for temporal happiness. I'm looking forward to those chapters. I trust you are as well as we dig in. He says, be unified. He says, be physically pure. He says, be spiritually pure. Fourth, he says, be decent and orderly. Paul turns his direction specifically and pointedly towards the corporate body, the corporate assembly of believers. And he calls on them 
to be decent and orderly in the assembly. Chapters 11 through 14 are filled with expectations and clarifications concerning the things which are most important to the corporate fellowship of believers. Now, we can sum up everything that he's about to say if we turn to chapter 14, verse 40. At the very end of this section, he says in verse 40 of chapter 14, let all things be done decently and in order. Everything from chapters 11 through 14 should be interpreted from this standpoint of doing things decently and in order. So in chapter 11, he addresses the women's role in the assembly. Women's role in the the corporate body of believers. He also addresses proper conduct concerning the Lord's Supper. We, uh, we go there every other month when we have our time in the morning uh, for Lord's Supper as we observe it every other month in the morning and every other month in the evening, the first Sunday of every month. We go to 1 Corinthians 11 to read that passage of correction. In chapter 12, he speaks of the diversity of spiritual gifts and the responsibility which this diversity brings. He also teaches in chapter 12 that the diversity of gifts work toward one unified end. And that's the Spirit of Christ and it must remain so. In chapter 13, he elaborates on the preeminent fruit of the Spirit, accessible to every believer. He calls it the more excellent way. Tim taught on it at the beginning of the the summer, for those of you that were there. And it is charity in 1 Corinthians 13. And then in chapter 14, he again comes back to this uh, concept. He, he doesn't really break his thought process. Charity goes right along with what he's teaching. But he comes back to the thought process of spiritual gifts and speaks about the limitations and the warnings, particularly focusing in on the spiritual gift of tongues, which the church in 1 Corinthians had a problem with and were incredibly imbalanced in their practice of tongues. Now, it must never be taken for granted that God expects the assembly of believers to be controlled, purposed, and orderly. This is God's desire for the assembly because it's God's desire for us as individual believers that we would be temperate, sober, controlled, orderly, and purposed in our worship and devotion to God. We'll talk about that more as we get there. Be unified. Be physically pure. Be spiritually pure. Fourth, be, decently and, be decent and orderly. The fifth and final point today, fifth and final major chunk of the book in Chapter 15, be accurate in doctrine. Be accurate in doctrine. This is the final major teaching, and it's specifically focusing in on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There was a group of people in the body, for various reasons, which we'll talk about, who were downplaying the necessity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ as a necessity for their faith. Now, perhaps this was due to the extreme negative reputation that the resurrection gave to Christianity. If you read the book of Acts, you you understand that uh, oftentimes the Jews in particular were more than willing to listen to what Paul had to say until he said the resurrection. And the moment he started talking about the resurrection, they all scoffed and scorned and ignored and um, refused to listen to him any longer. So Paul sets the record straight, emphasizing exactly how essential proper doctrine is to the Christian life. Millions upon millions of people in this country, as well as other countries, have been led astray by men and women willing to minimize and overlook doctrine in the church 
so that they won't offend people. Many others are led astray by their ignorance of God's Word in regard to doctrine. And Paul's message as he closes out the book is clear that doctrine is important. It's important to unity. It's important to spirituality. And as we step into the book of 1 Corinthians over these next many months, we'll find out many points of doctrine that are extremely important to us. So it is that throughout the months to come, there will be great challenges to us. We'll be challenged in the manner in which we live our Christian lives. We'll be challenged in the manner in which we interact one with another. We'll be challenged personally and corporately. Carnality is the great enemy of spirit empowerment. And in this country, in this Western culture, as it was in the day of Corinth, carnality in the church is everywhere. And it's probably creeping into this church as well. And while the only cure for carnality is to step out of this life and into the life that is to come that we look forward to one day, the solution to carnality will be given by Paul in the book of 1 Corinthians and will be studied throughout this series. The solution, in short, is found in your outline this morning. Be unified. Be physically pure from the sins of this world. Be spiritually pure, separated unto God. Be decent and orderly, conducting ourselves with temperance and sobriety. And to be accurate on doctrine. Ensuring that our foundation is as sound and as solid as that which we build upon it. And may God help us throughout these weeks to not just understand what the Word of God is saying, but to understand how it applies to our lives as individuals, our lives as a church, and how we can best reflect this doctrine in our lives. And may I encourage you, as we go through this series, pray that God would show us these things. Pray that God would reveal to us our carnality, our divisions, our physical, spiritual fornications, our lack of emphasis or confusion in relation to doctrine, any areas of our church or lives where we're not decent and orderly, in order that we might glorify God in all things.